people have the right to defend themselves and if you truly stand with somebody um, and their cause then you, you won't ask us to accept um, colonization and accept genocide peacefully without fighting back. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good afternoon and welcome to this meeting on Free Palestine, brought to you by Haymarket Books and Spectre Journal. Spectre Journal is a co-sponsor of this panel. My name is Diti Bharacharya and I'm one of the editors of Spectre. Those of you who don't know the journal yet, please visit us on spectrejournal.com. Here you will find our current issue that features a lead article by Robin Kelly on policing and racial capitalism. And the next issue that is en route already to subscribers includes two splendid roundtables from leading thinkers and activists, one on class struggle and racial justice after the Amazon unionization drive at Besmer, Alabama, and the other on eco-socialism. The new issue also includes essays on Brexit and racism in Britain and Black women's centrality to class struggle. Your subscriptions and donations allow us at Spectre to continue to bring together critical Marxist analysis, and I hope you'll continue to support us and urge your friends and comrades to do so by visiting us again at spectrejournal.com. This particular meeting on Palestine, we conceived this meeting before the last round of brutality and dispossession from the state of Israel upon the lives, homes, and livelihoods of Palestinians. At least 274 people were killed between 7th and 21st of May, including at least 71 children and 41 women. Many on the left, and especially in liberal circles, thus breathed a sigh of relief when a ceasefire was negotiated last week. But a ceasefire is really not a ceasefire on apartheid. When bombs fall silent and the global cameras turn away from Gaza, from East Jerusalem neighborhoods, it is time for the IDF to break through doors for armed settlers to terrorize with their open violence and cries of death to Arabs. Today's meeting, then, is to bring the focus back, not on the secession of violence by the ceasefire, but on the ongoing nature of Israeli violence, on the ongoing Nakba. It is thus a great pleasure for me to engage today with three leading activists in the Palestine movement. Let me introduce all three in the order that they will be speaking. We will hear from them first their assessment of the current uprising against Israeli apartheid in historic Palestine, as well as around the globe.
And then I'll pose to each of them a set of questions which speak to their own area of expertise in the movement. We will then have time for some questions and comments from all of you listening in. Let me begin by introducing Nerdine Kiswani. I first came to know about Nerdine when in 2015, as a 21-year-old student at Hunter College in New York, she was denied entry into Palestine by Israeli authorities. She was then told by an Israeli officer that she was being denied entry based on her, quote, hostile behavior towards Israel, unquote. Since then, she has been repeatedly harassed, intimidated by Zionist groups, but it will be no surprise to you to hear that it has only strengthened her resolve as a freedom fighter. Nardine is the chair of Within Our Lifetime, United for Palestine, and I urge you to visit the pa- their page at wolpalestine.com. That's all one word, W-O-L palestine.com. Our next speaker is a dear friend, Sumaya Awad. Sumaya is a Palestinian writer based in New York City. She's currently the director of strategy at the Adela Justice Project and the co-editor of the splendid book, Palestine, A Socialist Introduction. Finally, it is a great pleasure to welcome back old friend and comrade Kuri Peterson-Smith, the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, where he researches the war on terror, U.S. violence in the Middle East, Israeli apartheid, and the Palestinian freedom struggle. He's a co-author of the 2015 Statement of Black Solidarity with Palestine and part of the really important and urgent project, Black for Palestine. So without further ado, Nadine, take it away. Um, Thank you so much for having me um, and for, you know, um, covering this on Palestine. I think it's important um, that you mentioned that, you know, this was uh, happening even before, um, you know, the latest round of attacks and also the uprising, uh, because, you know, especially now with um, so many people hearing about Palestine, it feels like um, a lot of people are, are kind of just jumping onto the bandwagon now without knowing like the history, the principles, the struggles um, of what the Palestine liberation movement has been facing, particularly here in the U.S. Um, for so long. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the conversation, we were worried that it was going to be limited to just when, you know, bombs are dropping, when, you know, this issue has been going on for over 73 years um, of ethnic cleansing, genocide, apartheid, colonialism. Um, you know, it's a it's a indigenous struggle against settler colonization. So it doesn't start and end whenever, you know, there are war crimes or, um you know, humanitarian, um, you know, crimes against humanity or or human rights groups, uh, legal groups come out and and call Israel for what it is, right? We've always known this. Um, So, you know, my organization within our lifetime, United for Palestine, we believe that our role um, is to revitalize the revolutionary spirit of Palestinians um, abroad in pursuit uh, of a free homeland, Um, understanding that, you know, we're not um, in solidarity, just like in solidarity with ourselves, right? Most Palestinians actually um, don't get, don't live in Palestine because uh, 
million Palestinians were displaced um, in 1948 and continue to be displaced um, ever since then, whether it's, you know, uh, here in New York City and refugee camps in neighboring Arab countries um, and then so many, you know, different places of the world. So, um, you know, we understand that we're part of this struggle. Um, this is what self-determination looks like, right? You know, Palestinians um, mobilizing in every corner of the world, leading um, these movements, leading these protests, um, leading organizations um, in pursuit of, of returning to our homeland, uh, because that's one of the core tenets um, and the core uh, principles of the Palestine liberation movement. How can we talk about um, liberating Palestine when, if a majority of Palestinians are excluded from that conversation, when Zionists say that, you know, the right, right of return is out of the question, right? How can we talk about Palestinians without talking about right of return when most Palestinians um, are not in Palestine? So, you know, um, like you mentioned, I'm I'm banned from from my homeland um, for you know as long as this Zionist settler entity, um, this organization called Israel, masquerading as a country, um, continues to exist. So. Um, you know, I, in order to be able to go back to my homeland in my lifetime, um, we have to defeat, uh, defeat this illegitimate um, Zionist settler state that, you know, has no right um, to exist. You know, Zionists, a lot of times they try to say, um, you know, Palestinians, they don't want peace. We want to abolish Israel. Well, we had peace before Israel was created. So actually we do want peace and abolishing Israel is the key to peace. But, you know, I can't go, I can't even go back. I can't even visit my family and I'm Palestinian. So how can we talk about, you know, my rights there or, and I'm, and I, I still have privilege as an American citizen, right? That's the only reason that I could go back in the first place. And they found out I was a Palestinian. Um, you know, and that's why they deny me. But my family who lives in Jordan, um, who lived in Syria, who lived in so many different parts of the Arab world could never even dream of visiting because they would never be issued a visa, um, even though they live an hour away. Right. And, and I'm man. So um, to me, like this strengthened my resolve, like you said, because um, it, it just goes to show that, you know, we as a as people who are um, in exile as refugees um, have to understand that our struggle is inextricably um, tied to one another. It may take up various forms, uh, various methods, um, depending on where we are. But um, and I, I think ultimately that makes us stronger. And that's um, what is making this uprising um, the strongest in this current moment is that Palestinians across all of Palestine, from Gaza to Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, um, 48 in the camps um, and all over the world are united uh, in this message, in continuing these protests and are united in our resistance, um, you know, in whatever form it takes from wherever um, it comes from, whether that means um, fighting this blockade uh, the siege and, and ethnic cleansing um, uh, and genocide happening in Gaza by any means necessary or protesting here um, on the streets of New York City. We are united in our rage. We are united in our principles and we are united in our understanding that we are an indigenous people decolonizing, um, actively decolonizing our land 
um, no matter where we are. So, um, you know, this is this moment is what is what so many Palestinian organizations um, have been building towards, have been educating on. You know, it's not like something that just happened overnight um, randomly. Um, I think this is. Uh, something that the world has seen before, right? We've seen bombardment of Gaza time and, and time and time again. 2008, I was in eighth grade, right? Operation um, Cast Lad. We, we witnessed, this generation uh, has witnessed this bombardment happen time and time again against Palestinians. And, um, you know, people, you know, everything people tell us from whether, you know, you have to be nonviolent, you have, you know, people, we try BDS, the Great Return March. People are marching towards the borders um, for Gaza and, and, you know, they get shot. BDS is criminalized. You know, anything we do uh, or, or they suggest that we do in order to, you know, not get killed or, or get killed peacefully, uh, Palestinians have tried, yet it continues happening because the relationship that Israel has to Palestine as a, a settler col colonial entity that is actively colonizing and ethnically cleansing um, our people and our land um, has never changed. So, you know, I think uh, people are, are seeing that more and the political education that organizations have been doing, whether it's, you know, mobilizing on the streets or organizing and base building um, in in Palestinian and you know adjacent um, and other oppressed nationality communities, um, and working with organizations that are um, in other movements like the Black Liberation Movement, um, the Movement to Liberate uh, Puerto Rico, um, the Chicano Movement, um, and so many uh, so many other social movements happening. Um, in the U.S. and abroad um, are really, you know, bringing us to a point where people um, cannot say that they don't know what's going on in Palestine or that there are no resources to understand what's going on in Palestine, um, if, if, you know, uh, if that's true. But um, I think ultimately the numbers um, that we're seeing on the streets um, all over New York City, all over the country show that, you know, even though mainstream media continues to silence us and malign us, um, even though there are literally millions and, and possibly even billions of dollars invested in crushing the movement for Palestinian liberation, um, the voice of the people will continue to scream and it will not break uh, because we know that this is a righteous struggle. Um, this is a just struggle. And, you know, history and the truth um, is, is on our side and, and will be on our side. So I'll just, uh, you know, leave the rest of the, the time for for Q&A. But um, thank you so much for creating this space again. And I look forward to hearing from the other speakers. Thank you so much, Nardine, um, pointing towards a very, very important idea that this is not a liquid problem. This is not just Netanyahu, but to the actual structural problem of Israel occupying a land that does not belong to it. So our next speaker, Samaya. Thanks, Tithi. Um, thanks, Nardine, for laying that out. I think that you know, just to start where you and, and Nardine left off the ceasefire, the so-called ceasefire. I think we need to all understand that there is no ceasefire under settler colonialism unless it's one that sees the end to a settler colonial project. Um, and that is clearly not the case. Not only did um, the day of the ceasefire on Friday, Palestinians in Jerusalem who were uh, gathering and praying at Al-Aqsa Al Mosque were attacked with rubber bullets and grenades. This is just a few hours after the ceasefire. Um, 
But then what we saw just yesterday, there was a statement that was released by Palestinians in 48, so Palestinians in Israel, who uh, said that there's this uh, campaign by Israeli police and security agencies to round up and arrest in the hundreds Palestinians that had participated in protests across Palestine, across 48, um, uh, and, and detain them. And we've already seen that happen. So since May 2nd, 1,400 Palestinians have been detained um, as, you know, as they participated in protest, um, as they participated online, on social media, et cetera. And now in, in the next 24 hours, so this started yesterday morning, they released a statement saying in the next 48 hours, Israel is going to detain at least 400 Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, and this is ongoing. And a lot of the raids have already happened overnight. They come at night. Of course, they come at night, just like cops in this country come at night. Um, and just took people, kidnapped people from their homes. And this is ongoing. In the West Bank, Palestinians that participated in protest, uh, Palestinians that commented online um, and openly on the ground about the corruption in the PLO and the Palestinian uh, Authority are also being surveilled, are also being um, arrested, because we know that these, these so-called Palestinian leaders cooperate and coordinate with the Israeli government, with the Israeli security agencies. And then we've seen outside of Palestine, um, Palestinians and Palestine advocates being censored online, um, whether that's via social media, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, taking posts down, um, reporting them, all of this under the, the umbrella, the justification of these very arbitrary um, uh, community standards that allow for all of the racist, vile, and violent posts against Palestinians filled with racism, filled with Islamophobia to go unchecked just everywhere, literally inciting violence against them. Um, but when Palestinians try to document what's happening to them, it's it's censored, it's taken down, it's shadow banned, et cetera. And it's also, also worth noting that the, the, um, the Jewish Israelis that we saw in the streets of 48 in the streets of Jerusalem chanting death to Arabs, walking around with literally clubs and weapons going hunting for Palestinians in the streets, they were not arrested. They faced absolutely no accountability. Meanwhile, Palestinians resisting their oppression um, uh, are being arrested in, in mass. So this is, this is the reality of what a ceasefire means to Palestinians under occupation. This is what a ceasefire means to Israel. Um, and I think this is important because it means that right now it's just as urgent as last week when Gaza was being um, bombarded with bombs and it was being carpet bombed. Now, all of this, and then, you know, just to go to what Nadine was saying, what, what's really incredible about what we've seen in the last two weeks is there has been this unity across Palestine, right? It, it was in Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem 48, this one unified call that manifested in a strike last Tuesday where Palestinians um, uh, over... One and a half million, I think, was the number. Over one and a half million Palestinians participated in this strike across Palestine. A lot of people have been saying the last time something like this happened was maybe in 1947, um, where it was unified across the land from the river to the sea. Um, and not only that, but it was also Palestinians in neighboring countries, in Jordan, in Lebanon, um, even in Syria and some of the occupied or sorry, not occupied, well, occupied Golan Heights, but also like in Idlib, right, where it's not regime controlled, 
um, Syrians rose up and Palestinians there rose up um, in solidarity with with the strike. Um, and in in Iraq on Friday, I believe, um, Iraqis tried to make their way to the border with Jordan in a show of solidarity, wanting to go to Jerusalem. I mean, this is this is unprecedented, you know, for at least seven decades that there is this unity that transcended borders, that the Palestinian diaspora, 7 million plus Palestinians in the diaspora are just as Palestinian as Palestinians in Palestine, and that they also want to return home, that this is their homeland, that this is their struggle, even if they don't live there, even if they were forced out, um, et cetera. So I think that was really incredible. And the fact that all of these, all of these actions and protests were not affiliated with any particular political party or faction or anything like that. It was actually Palestinians on the ground rising and very deliberately saying, we're not associated with any of these groups because they're all corrupt, um, specifically the, the PA and the PLO. So I think that's really important. And it was all grounded in the idea that this is self-determination. That is what we're fighting for, self-determination, the right to exist, um, and really cementing from the river to the sea, right? Which is essentially saying there is no middle solution. There's no two states. There is no, you know, whatever these leaders want to talk about in these halls of power. What we're demanding is full liberation, full decolonization. And to say that confidently and openly, um, and then for those same words to be used in, in the media that's covering this. I mean, people have pointed out that, you know, we haven't really seen words like ethnic cleansing, um, settler colonialism used to describe Palestine outside of a very fringe left. But we saw that in the mainstream these last few weeks. It wasn't just these hollow slogans of Palestinian rights, but it was, hey, this is ethnic cleansing. What's happening in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem is ethnic cleansing. This is part of a Judaization project that Israel has been trying to accomplish for 73 plus years. Um, I'm running out of time. So there's two other things that I wanted to point out, I think, about the last two weeks in particular. Um, one is how the, the solidarity that was shown across the Middle East is really important because it also functions to push back against U.S. imperialism in the region and against the counter-revolutionary governments in the region, whether that be in Bahrain and the UAE, um, in Jordan, in Lebanon, um, certainly in Syria and Tunisia, um, etc. And I think that's really important because it uh, comes in the way of what we know what we know is going to happen this year, maybe next year, because of what's what's happening now, which is these normalization deals with Israel. The Abraham Accords, which uh, Trump uh, sort of helped to funnel through, but which we know the Democrats have absolutely no interest in, um, in rescinding or backtracking on. In fact, this has been the plan of the U.S. government of the establishment, is to create this unified economic zone across the Middle East with Israel and the Gulf uh, countries as its center, uh, because this profits, you know, the U.S. is going to profit so much from this, partly because of shared uh, uh, interests in like the weapons industry and technology surveillance, et cetera, um, but also because it allows them to create all of these economic zones where there's no regulation, where it allows for like rapid increase of privatization, et cetera. Um, and that's very profitable to the U.S. and certainly to Israel and all of these um, governments in, in the Middle East. And I think what this did, this this show of solidarity from 
the Arab working class across the region is it it works against that directly because it's saying actually this is our struggle because this is connected to the fights we're fighting domestically, whether that's in Bahrain um, and the UAE, you know, the two governments that do have this normalization deal with Israel or Jordan, which also has a, 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 a peace deal with Israel. Um, but even beyond that, so I think that was really, really important. And then um, in the U.S., it's also really cut against this attempt by Biden and the establishment to just go back to the status quo on Palestine pre-Trump. Um, and I think they're they're really struggling with how quickly things have developed in the last week, not only because there are these massive protests on the ground that Nadeen was just talking about and that they've they've been every like it hasn't stopped. Usually it's like one big protest or like three big protests and then it kind of dies down. But there are protests planned almost every day this week. Um, and and I think that's that also points to people aren't going to just sit back because there's this so-called ceasefire. People actually want more than that. They're like, no, what Israel's doing is ongoing. How do we stop that? And then connected to that, I think some of the stuff we've seen in Congress is also really important. And of course, is connected to the movements on the ground. But when you have uh, uh, members of the U.S. Congress calling Israel an apartheid state, that's not not you can't backtrack on that. You know, you said it's an apartheid state. It's like, OK, well, what's next? How do we stop that? Um, so I think that's really important as well and puts the establishment in a position where it's realizing the dissent isn't just this fringe, small group on the side, but is actually gaining popularity in the mainstream and is connecting to all of these other social justice struggles from Black Lives Matter to climate justice and beyond. Um, and of course, and I'm, I'm sure Karee will talk a lot about this, but of course, you know, what, what sparked what we saw in the last two weeks was Sheikh Jarrah, what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah, the brutality of what Palestinians are facing in Sheikh Jarrah. And seeing that police brutality um, and what happened in this country a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, right? Um, I think that has everything to do with the outrage um, and the connections people felt to what Palestinians were facing on the ground um, and what helped really spark the the response. And I think Cori Bush spoke to this in, in her speech when she when she really connected Ferguson to Palestine, when she talked about Basim Masri um, and what the memory and the strength and the courage and the persistence of, of Palestinians um, uh, does and how it motivates movements and it and it pushes us to, to demand more than what we're told um, we should expect or is, is realistic. Um, I will end by saying <laughs> that um, I think that the, the next step in, in the U.S. is um, what, how, how do we keep this momentum going and how do we shift this popular support into an actual change in the material support for Israel? Because it's one thing to have a large movement. It's one thing to finally start defeating the arguments that Zionists put forward. Um, and, and we know that this is working because of the backlash we've seen just in the last three days, where everyone is just you know, smearing the entire Palestine movement with accusations of anti-Semitism um, in a way to derail and distract and, and redirect the conversation. So I think that shows that the narrative shift is real. We actually are winning the argument. And the question, and, and hopefully we'll get we'll get into this later on um, on the panel, is how do we take that and make it into material change on the ground? Thank you, Samaya, for that wide-ranging and powerful analysis. And just to follow from you, I mean, there is a direct and very simple line between 
um, Israel and the police force in the United States, where United States police is trained by IDF. So, you know, the most violent parts of the capitalist state actually are great friends and they speak to each other regularly and train each other. So on that, I think our um, last speaker, Kuri, is is an expert. So over to you, Kuri. Thank you. What an absolute honor uh, to be part of this really fantastic event. Um, so Nurdin and Sumeya spoke about a number of things, including this really incredible um, historic unity among Palestinians across Palestine in the diaspora uh, immediately surrounding Palestine and in neighboring countries, as well as the diaspora all around the world. Uh, and that has been such an amazing counter to the unreal level of Israeli uh, violence that that we've experienced, uh, that, that both of those things have existed at the same time. Uh, and so I would love to talk, uh, kind of taking from that and appreciating that and recognizing that, talk about something that Samea, I think, was starting to talk about, which is why the conversation in this place called the United States, I think has been different this time than in previous uh, waves of violence like this, because unfortunately this is not, uh, this is far from the, the first time. And um, as, as Nardine and Sumeya pointed out, ceasefire or not, the, the violence is ongoing, right? And yet the conversation in the U.S. is, is changing quite a lot. So I'd love to, to talk a bit about that. And the first thing that has to be said is, is something about just the years and years of work uh, carried out and led by Palestinians uh, in particular in this country, on its campuses, in communities, uh, to relentlessly call attention to Israeli violence and to the U.S. support for it. The, all of the different ways that U.S. society is enmeshed, implicated in Israeli apartheid the ways that uh, our college campuses and other many, many other institutions are invested in uh, apartheid, uh, et cetera, all of the funding that comes from the United States, the weapons that come from the United States, et cetera. Comrades have carried out this work for years, um, you know, again, uh, Palestinians primarily. Uh, and it has meant that actually, I would argue that as horrendous as these moments of particularly spectacular Israeli violence always are, each time they carry out one in recent years, they lose in the realm of public opinion. Uh, the, 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 the fact is that for Israel to carry out what it does in Palestine not only involves and requires tremendous violence, it requires legitimacy. Uh, which is why Israel works so hard to cast itself as the so-called Middle East's only democracy, uh, which is why the United States, uh, which claims to be, of course, the world's greatest democracy, um, works so hard to, to cast Israel in this humanitarian way. You know, Israel has the most humane army, et cetera, et cetera. They, they need that kind of uh, ideological work, that legitimacy to carry out their violence. And the fact is, 
that with each of these assaults, you know, on Lebanon in 2006, uh, on Gaza in 2008 and 2009, and again in 2014, uh, and again today, each time they lose people, they lose that legitimacy. Um, and so I think that that is a product not only of how ferocious the violence is itself. I mean, Israel, I think it, in, in its violence and in its, its, its kind of uh, nakedness, it reveals itself to people um, in ways that I think push them to, to, to raise questions. But when those questions are raised, they encounter a vibrant movement uh, in this country led by Palestinians uh, that has won more and more people to solidarity with Palestine. So that is the foundation. And then, of course, we have to talk about what Sumeya put on the table, which is the fact that last year was a wild year <laughs> all around the world and certainly in this place called the United States. Uh, but it was a very important year because it was a year of Black-led revolt against police violence and against anti-black racism sparked by uh, the murder of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many uh, others that has produced this thing that is being called the racial reckoning. And it is in that context that people in this country, many with fresh eyes, seeing this country in different ways, seeing the depths, because the conversation has not just been about the murderers of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They've been his deeply, um, conversations that deeply interrogate the history of this country. Remember last year was a year in which states that had Confederate flags as part of their official insignia had to finally change that. It was a year when Confederate statues finally came down uh, in many places. Uh, it is a year where we are having in mainstream public outlets, conversations about the origins of American policing in slave patrols, where we were having a public national conversation about things like defunding and abolishing the police. <laughs> so these are big, deep conversations. Uh, and in many ways, people are looking at this country with fresh eyes. And then it is with those same eyes that we look over at what is happening in Palestine. And when you see the militarized police in Jerusalem forcing people out of their homes, that's not only horrendous in and of itself, but it looks familiar. <laughs> it looks familiar. And that's not coincidental because, as Tiffy said, the U.S. police and the Israeli police train together. The Israeli police are armed by the U.S. police. U.S. police are armed by Israeli police. And U.S. police also use Israeli weapons. Uh, so this is not coincidental. Um, when we see fascist gangs of Israelis chanting death to Arabs, setting up their own checkpoints like the Proud Boys uh, did in this country, that looks familiar. When people see Netanyahu, he looks familiar and, and reminds people of Trump. Uh, and then again, when looking at this assault on Gaza, uh, again, there are these things that uh, we're seeing with, with fresh eyes. And if it makes sense to raise some deep, fundamental questions about the history of the United States and the central role of racism in this country, I think growing numbers of people are seeing perhaps it makes sense to raise some big fundamental questions about Israel and about the centrality of racism and uh, dispossession of the indigenous population that is so central to the Israeli project. So that is one um, absolutely key thing. Another thing is that 
because of this convergence of things, of, of this really powerful movement for Black Lives that it, that is on its own trajectory, by the way, that, I mean, keep in mind the, the phrase Black Lives Matter is coined in 2013, I believe. So this has been going on here in this country for, for, for quite a while, has reached a certain level of uh, uh, maturity and has implications in our minds for looking uh, at Palestine and coming into solidarity with Palestinians, which is why, by the way, we say when one group of us get free, we all get free. That's not just rhetorical. It really uh, matters in, in the real world and helping people see the connections. Uh, so given the fact that those connections uh, are being made through these, these struggles, um, through this kind of organizing that, that is uh, taking place over the years, we are, as Sumeya pointed out, uh, seeing reflection uh, or expression uh, of that kind of work finally enter powerful institutions in this country. Um, one of those institutions I'll name uh, is the media, the U.S. media, which I think it, has, it is a different conversation, not quite the conversation we need to have, but, we're, but, but a different conversation uh, than I think in, in, um, in, in previous times. Uh, you know, when I think about that, that, that conversation that we typically have, I think about a kind of script. There's like this Israeli-American script. Um, and I think of it almost in terms of like the, the script of a, of a play where you know the plot, you know, the, all of, all of the, the American mainstream uh, journalists and, and editors know the plot. The American officials and Israeli officials know the plot. They know the characters. They know Hamas is the bad guy. You know, they, Israel is acting in self-defense. They all use the, these phrases, et cetera, et cetera. That's the script. And we now have num growing numbers of people who are in position to disrupt the script. So it, it, you know, in addition to the incredible organizing on the ground, I just I, I do want to shout out the importance in these past couple of weeks of these rallies across the country and just highlight Nadine and Sumeya are incredible organizers um, uh, among many doing amazing organizing all across this country. So that matters. And also, we have people like Ayman Moyadeen, a Palestinian on MSNBC, who, when interviewing Israeli officials who are used to talking to <laughs> American uh, journalists who, who are used to the script, Ayman is able to say something different and, 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 and forces them uh, to answer a different set of questions. And it means that the script gets disrupted. We have uh, Noura Erekat on CNN. Uh, again, we're seeing an outlet that's used to having one kind of conversation. And then you have somebody like Nora uh, and others who are able to disrupt that conversation. That's really impactful. And the last piece, again, as Sumeya spoke to, you know, there is currently there, there, there are more people in the U.S. Congress than ever before in U.S. history who are sympathetic to Palestinians, who find themselves in solidarity with Palestinians and who are willing to question uh, U.S. support for Israel. It's not the number <laughs> that is necessary. And we know that uh, these, you know, the actual transformation in U.S. policy that is so key to buttressing Israeli power, that's not going to come from institutions like Congress. Uh, and, and in fact, I think the fact that there are people now in Congress, like Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman, who see their role as advocates for Palestinian rights, it's actually revealing 
precisely how undemocratic um, and and how how at the core uh, things like the U.S. relationship with Israel are to the kind of functioning of U.S. empire. And so that struggle will continue. And yet they're there to disrupt the script. And again, uh, that kind of thing matters. So, you know, I think it's really important that Palestinians uh, were pointing out before the ceasefire and continue to point out um, that the violence is ongoing and that we should actually stay vigilant even when they declare a ceasefire. And that has been really key because literally at this moment, there are thousands of Israeli police fanning out across Palestine, rounding up hundreds uh, of people. Um, and so the solidarity needs to continue. And, and, and I think that that's one of the key points here. If, um, you know, ceasefire or no, uh, the Israeli apartheid is ongoing, it means that the solidarity and the resistance must also be ongoing. And I think what we have now is that we're entering a new phase of that kind of solidarity and that resistance. New phase in Palestine and a new phase uh, here in this place called the United States. And a challenge for us and a real responsibility for us is to grapple with what is possible in this new phase. I think that 2021 needs to be, for example, a year where multiple police departments in this country are forced to break their ties with Israeli apartheid. We have the pieces in place. The whole world saw last year in ways that were undeniable the ways that the U.S. police operate, not only in a day-to-day way against black people, but in terms of repressing protest. Undeniable last year. Now we have in these recent weeks for the whole world to see how the Israeli police operate, (laughs) Uh, the, the people who train with the American police. It's clear that that tie should be broken. Uh, And so a question is, what can we do to make good on that opportunity and that responsibility uh, and the many other opportunities? I'll leave it there. Very grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Kuri. So wonderful to hear from you, as always. I'm going to circle back and um, ask um, our speakers some specific questions that speak to their amazing activism. To Nerdine, it reminded me when you said that you were in eighth grade in 2008 when um, CAS led was going on in Gaza. Um, it's important for those of you who are listening in to understand that at that time, Ehud Olmert was the um, prime minister of um, uh, of Israel, and he's supposedly a moderate. So again, we cannot talk about this being a Netanyahu problem. This is an Israel problem. So on that note, I want to ask you, Nadine, if you could talk a little bit about your organization and what you explained so beautifully why it's called the right of return, why you're talking about um, uh, re- uh, the right of return, but why within our lifetime? Can you explain that a little bit? Because that seems to be a really important clue which might frame and guide our activism. Yeah, um, totally. I think that's a great question. And uh, But just before I get into it, I love the point that you made about, you know, 2008 and it not being a Netanyahu problem. And it reminded me of a story uh, my father, you know, used to tell me, um, you know, many people have heard of Yitzhak Rabin, 
Um, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, also former prime minister of Israel. He was killed by far-right Israelis for being too, quote-unquote, peaceful. And this is the same guy who had the bone-breaking policy, where, you know, they used to say, if they throw stones, break their bones. Indigenous struggle, all we have is our land to defend ourselves. We don't have an army. Uh, we don't, you know, we can't um, organize ourselves. We can't even talk to each other or post things on Facebook now without being criminalized. Um, facing, you know, uh, one of the most... Uh, well-funded, well-armed, uh, largest armies in the world. Uh, and my dad personally witnessed, you know, people that he saw in his in his community from his village in Palestine um, having their bones crushed by Israeli soldiers, children, like, you know, had their arms outstretched over rocks and literally crushed over boulders with rocks, uh, you know, because they were defending their village from from Israeli uh, Zionists coming in. So, you know, this is this is their peace. You know, this is what, um, you know, peace, the most peaceful prime minister who won the Nobel Peace Prize looks like in Israel. So I just wanted to add that. But, you know, to get to your question, um, we believe that, you know, it's important to understand that it is on us and it, it's on um you know, our generation, you know, whatever generation that that is right now um, to fight for Palestine, full liberation, full stop, no fine print, no exceptions. And, and that's why we say within our lifetime, a lot of people look at this and they think that it's like a decade. It's like a centuries old conflict that will never end right between Jews and Muslims. And that sort of framing of like this overcomplicated thing kind of just leaves people being like, I don't want to touch it. I have nothing to do with it. This has been going on forever and it's going to keep going on forever when that's simply not true. You know, my grandma, she passed away recently and I she always used to say that she wanted to go back in her lifetime because when she she was born in 1938, when she was kicked off of her land, when she was 10 years old and had to walk to Jordan, she believed that they would be coming back next week, next month at some point. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, she never got to, but she never um, lost that determination and the understanding that this is their homeland and that they have a right to go back to it as soon as possible. Even UN Resolution 194 stipulated that the right of return um, at the earliest date, you know, um, had to occur. And they and they put out this resolution in 1948. Of course, they're not going to implement it. The first thing the UN did was partition Palestine. So their resolutions in support of us have also been you know, pretty meaningless. But I mean, this is recognized that, that this is possible, um, that this is not overly complicated. It's a simple solution, whether it's the people of Gaza who, you know, people talk about Gaza, most densely populated region in the world, no clean water, crumbling infrastructure due to Israeli bombardment constantly. Uh, but all of this can be solved. And we say what, in like 20 minutes, because where are they fighting to go back to? The original homes and villages and lands that are 20 minutes away car, by a car ride from where they're living in Gaza right now, uh, where they're forced to live because their villages have been taken away from them. So, you know, uh, understanding that every all of these things um, that we talk about can ultimately be solved by Palestinians achieving this liberation in our lifetime um, and, and getting to return to their homelands. And it's not impossible Algeria fought French colonization for 100 years um, and they achieved freedom and Palestinians um, can also achieve freedom if we believe it and if we fight for it. And we want people to know that us Palestinians, we do believe it and we are fighting for it and we believe it's going to happen you know, in our generation, too. So we need others um, to also act like that 
and work like that and, and, and believe it too. We need allies who are going to help us. In the words of Malcolm X, we need allies who are going to help us achieve a victory, not allies who are going to tell us um, to be nonviolent. And we do believe that that victory um, is near and we need y'all, everyone else to believe it too. Thank you, Nadine. Um, Smaya, you edited, co-edited this splendid book, um, a Socialist Framing of Palestine. So could you talk a little bit about what a socialist framing looks like as opposed to any other kind and really explain why it is that um, this close relationship exists between the United States in particular and Israel as an entity? Yeah, thanks, Tithi. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think that people should read the book, but I think at the heart of some of the arguments we're making in the book is that we're not interested, as Palestinians, we're not interested in just replacing our oppressors, but also to think about what kind of free Palestine we want to build. And I think that's what makes the recent protests in the last two weeks the, the statement, the manifesto that came out from the strike, so powerful. Because not only were they talking about unity from the river to the sea, but also about um, uh, uh, a formation on the ground that's leading this charge. And that's um, deciding what the principles, what the, what the tenets of the call uh, are going to be. And importantly, that it won't be divided by or orchestrated by uh, groups with very particular um, economic interests and political interests. And I think that's sort of at the heart of what we mean when we say let's approach this from an anti-capitalist perspective. And, and I think socialism offers that, uh, offers an alternative. And in the U.S. specifically, especially as we're seeing this left that's growing um, and that this openly socialist left within that, um, it means there are all these opportunities to make connections between what is happening in Palestine, what is happening in the Middle East with U.S. imperialism, but also other forms of imperialism, and the struggles we're waging here in the U.S., um, struggles against austerity, struggles for affordable housing, for health care, for education, um, uh, for uh, immigrant rights, for, you know, uh, less stringent that, that's too nice of a way of saying it um, for re re <laughs> for reestablishing an entire um, immigration um, um, approach in the United States. Anyway, I think all of this, the links between these are coming out more than ever. But I think as, as socialists in this country, we need to work much harder on drawing out these organic connections and figuring out how do we uh, make Palestine central to our organizing? Because as Kari said, it's not just about rhetoric. It's a lot more than that in the U.S., um, right. The, the, our tax dollars are funding the bombs falling in Gaza, are funding the weapons that Israeli police are using against Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, Palestinians in Umm al-Fahim, like 17-year-old Muhammad um, Kiwan, who was shot in the head and killed. He's 17 years old while protesting on Tuesday. Um, that these are actually funded by our tax dollars. And it's that direct link it seems like it's it's so abstract, but but really it's not, especially when here we're also fighting um, for the most basic types of, of, you know, basic human rights like healthcare, Right. And, and I think COVID has, has really brought that out. So I think drawing these connections more concretely is really important for us as socialists and understanding that what what 
the relationship between U.S. and Israel is part of a larger um, uh, plan that the United States has in the Middle East and has had and is continuing, you know, will continue to have despite uh, questions about, you know, China being the new um, quote unquote enemy to the U.S. I think the U.S. has so much at stake in the Middle East um, and wants to continue to push for establishing the, the single economic zone that I mentioned earlier because it profits a lot from its relationship with Israel. Not simply because what Israel is doing is similar to what the U.S. did here um, on land here um, and in erasing indigenous communities here, but also because of the the arms industry, um, the U.S. military industrial complex. Um, and, you know, Israel is the world's largest um, arms exporter per capita. That has a huge uh, impact on the U.S., but also on a number of other governments around the world, like India, like uh, Colombia, like Honduras, etc., um, and also because the political immunity that the U.S. provides Israel, because it's not just financial ties, right, but it's also the political immunity that um, the U.S. Uh, gives Israel is really, really key to the U.S. continuing to have the particular relationships with counter-revolutionary governments across the, the, the Middle East, whether that's Sisi or Bashar al-Assad um, or the, the different governments in the Gulf. And that for the U.S. is key because we've seen uprisings in the Middle East and some are ongoing. Um, and these, you know, if, if they were to continue to to um, uh, pass, not Palestinian, sorry, if across the region these uprisings continue, we know that they will. Um, it's sort of a matter of time before there's another big revolt um, in, in different regions um, that this has a huge impact on on. U.S. interests in the Middle East, U.S. economic interests in the Middle East, um, as well as um, uh, China's interests in the region and Russia's. And, you know, I don't have to get into geopolitics, but I think that all of that has to do with why the U.S. is continuing to to prop up Israel. Um, it, it's it's both about economic interests and about these political and business interests in the region. And it's the U.S. government. Yes, but it's also big U.S. businesses, like large corporations um, that are tied to the governments that lobby different groups in the government, etc. And that's all connected to what we're fighting for here in the U.S. as socialists and as the left when we're fighting for um, working class people. We're constantly up against, you know, the government and big corporations. And these are the same entities that are benefiting off of what is happening in Palestine. And I think for that reason, focusing on how do we cut U.S. financial Backing for Israel is key. And I don't just mean the 735 million weapons deal that um, is going to be debated in the Senate this week, but I mean more than that, the $3.8 billion that's going to Israel every year, um, because that's that's how we get to, to cutting off political uh, justification or political ties between Israel and the United States. And the fact is the U.S. continues to be um, the, the largest, most powerful imperial country in the world today. And so what happens here will have reverberations on um, movements elsewhere in the world um, and on governments elsewhere in the world. And so I think we have a very particular role in the U.S. And also, I don't think we're going to have the opportunity that we have right now for very long. Um, you know, Karee really laid out how the shifts in the last few weeks are really important and have to do with the context of the last year. But I think we're at this juncture this, we, where we have these opportunities to push a lot further than what we're used to getting um, because people are listening, um, people in the mainstream are listening, um, and there's a lot of attention on this. And so how are we going to seize this opportunity to see how far we can push um, before before we lose it? And, you know, I hope I hope we're able to to uh, 
really use all this potential because it's there and it's important and it's urgent because Palestinians are dying and because people in this country are dying every day from things that are um, avoidable. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's true. You know, all everything that we're seeing unfold um, in the U.S., in Palestine, in India, um, and now in Argentina with COVID, like all of these are avoidable deaths and they're all connected. Um, and yes, we're making these organic connections more apparent, um, but we also have to act and like actually change the policy, the, the material connections in place that allow this type of death and destruction to go on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samaya. What what an incredible um, analysis. Um, you know, uh, she bring, you bring up COVID. I mean, there is such a Malthusian genocidal logic to Israel's counting of numbers that it can project itself as the highest rate of vaccination in the world when it has ensured that Palestinians do not have any access to COVID-19 vaccines. So it just shows you even how Israel counts um, and the ingredients that go into the making of its so-called democracy. So um, Nardine also brought up Malcolm X. So I want to turn to Kuri and ask you to speak a little bit about this rich history that exists in the United States from way back when, Malcolm X being one of the figures who had supported Palestine. Uh, Grace Lee Boggs is another person. And I want to just ask you to speak today a little bit about that rich history and to sort of situate it is, and to why it is that you started the Black for Palestine ca campaign and why, you know, to go by the feminist strike slogan, why you consider solidarity to be our most powerful weapon in this struggle. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, so that's a it's a it's a great and big question, and I wanna I wanna go deep and just say start with a word about the Black and Palestinian populations, just who we are, uh, because I think that as groups of people, we are we are people who the whole kind of global capitalist nation state system has really struggled to contain. <laughs> we complicate that system um, and we threaten it. And the control of, uh, of us has been central to uh, the work of this state called the United States, that state called Israel and states all around the world. Uh, we're talking about um, Populations. We talk about the black population, you know, which there's a global black diaspora, of course. If we're talking about uh, the black population in the Americas, so many of us are here because of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, and it produced uh, that that slave trade produced this kind of transnational black reality that really, you know, the people who run the states, the nation states that constitute this hemisphere and you know, the ones around the world have seen us as this threat to be controlled and contained. Uh, but also our resistance has historically 
been so powerful, not only wherever, when whatever country we happen to be located, but actually transnationally. And the same, a similar thing can be said for Palestinians. You know, again, a, a group of people uh, whose history was tremendously impacted through the colonization project of Israel, um, producing uh, uh, a population that has largely been displaced, and that is diasporic, uh, and which states, uh, of course, Israel, but states in the Middle East, you know, in North America and around the world have seen um, as, as, as a, a community that threatens and complicates uh, their rule. Um, because of the processes that produced our diasporas, um, because of things like migration, whether that was migration that people elected to uh, or forced migration through displacement and these genocidal um, uh, kind of colonial practices. We have these expansive communities, which include uh, black Palestinians, which include Afro-Palestinians in Palestine and so on. And all of which, all of which uh, the nation states of Israel and the United States see as, as threats. So that's just, just by virtue of, of who we are and how our communities have been constituted. Um, there is, and there has been historically uh, among black folks and uh, among Palestinian folks, this radical revolutionary potential. When we move, it so shakes, you know, the whole kind of capitalist uh, nation state, you know, political order of things. And that's really powerful. Uh, and precisely because of that, you know, now I'll speak a little more specifically about the United States, which, you know, um, Black America is the context for um, Black folks with which I'm most familiar. Uh, because of that, the people who run this country since before <laughs> before it was even declared the United States um, have prioritized the control of uh, the black population, um, in it, it, along with the control of the indigenous population, the, the population indigenous to this place. Uh, that has been a very self-conscious project that has been not only central to the United States, but it is part of the kind of primordial context from which the United States emerges uh, is this project of, of subjugating and controlling the black population. And I would argue there is a similar kind of um, parallel to be found in Israel. The, the, again, from, from even the before the um, colonizing project, before they even decided that Palestine would be the location, Theodore Herzl writes, you know, the, the, the so-called father of Zionism, writes about how the need to subjugate the indigenous population is going to be a central uh, part of the project that uh, that Zionism uh, embarked upon. And so what that what that means is you have, uh, you know, two projects, the United States and Israel, that see in each other a, a kind of convergence of interests to say, you know, we've got to control our subject population. You've got to control yours. Let's let's work together. Um, you know, you think about the U.S., which has, has we as, as, as people, as black people in this country, we have yet to be, and I don't think we can be, incorporated as full citizens in, in you know, in this place called the United States. And uh, once again, in the past year, people in this place and around the world have gotten fresh batches of evidence for that. Think about the fact that even as Derek Chauvin is on trial, 
Um, and we can, you know, th there was extremely important critiques of the very fact that he was on trial and what a trial means in the criminal justice system and how that will not provide ju justice and so on. But even as this thing that supposedly exists to redress grievances is in operation, the police still kill Dante Wright just miles from the courthouse where Derek Chauvin is, is uh, being, being tried. The police kill Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old Latino child uh, in Chicago. The police kill Micaiah uh, Bryant in Columbus, Ohio, as the verdict for Derek Chauvin is being delivered. So this, it, it shows, you know, that I, what I would argue is an inability, an inability of the United States to uh, incorporate uh, 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 black folks um, uh, as, as full citizens. And Israel, I mean, is, is <laughs> quite direct about uh, the utter disinterest, um, not only disinterest in having Palestinians as participants, as even residents uh, in Palestine, but rather the utter contempt uh, for the very existence of Palestinian people in the world, um, and particularly in Palestine. So what that means is that these two states share ideology, they share technologies. Um, the U.S. does a tremendous service uh, to, to Israel by uh, providing at least $3.8 billion worth of military aid every year to Israel, selling weapons uh, giving Israel political and diplomatic cover in uh, on the world stage in places like the UN uh, and elsewhere. I mean, at this very moment, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is uh, on his way to Palestine, uh, supposedly for diplomacy, which I would argue is actually meant to distract from what is actually happening, which is the ongoing Israeli violence against the Palestinian people, right? That is how those two states work. But Again, by virtue of who black folks uh, are and who Palestinians are, <laughs> there has been this kind of history because, because of the, the potency um, of our resistance and the, the tendency for our resistances to converge also, for us to see each other uh, in, in each other's struggles. And so this history goes back many decades, uh, the 1960s in particular, um, as Nardine and um, Tithi have, have uh, referred to, was one high point um, of tremendous solidarity where people like Malcolm X, uh, uh, where, where organizations like the Black Panthers, um, where organizations uh, like the Revolutionary Union Movement uh, in Detroit and in and around Detroit all identified um, with the Palestinian freedom struggle, where SNCC, um, the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee, which in the kind of official narratives of, of the civil rights within this country is framed not only in very domestic terms, but in regional terms. You know, the civil rights movement in SNCC only operated in the southern United States. That's it. When in fact, they had an expansive transnational outlook um, in which solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle uh, was central. And so we are, I think, currently uh, in the midst of another wave of Black and Palestinian uh, solidarity, uh, where once again, these struggles um, are mutually amplifying each other. And I think this is extremely important because there's this tendency when we talk about when we talk about struggles for liberation, sometimes because oppression is so severe, 
there can be this sense, and certainly I've heard uh, from folks, why why talk about why talk about what's happening over there when we have when we have enough problems over here? Um, and first of all, I would challenge us to to ex- think about who we is, and you know, my we includes <laughs> Palestinians and um, all people fighting for their freedom. Uh, but for for what it's worth, you know, it, it, it's not only compelling enough, I think that Palestinians will be free in their lifetime. That, that for me is enough to fight for, for, for Palestinian freedom, to do, to do what, I, what I can, for us to do what we can in this country that plays such a role in, in bolstering Israeli apartheid. But also for what it's worth, it really is the case that our oppressions are linked and our resistances and our liberation is also linked. Uh, and we only, we only go further when we work together. Thank you, Kuri. And that's a perfect way because Kuri raises a, a difficult question within the movement and Kuri raises the question of strategy. What do we answer when they say, you know, well, this is really not my problem. So I'm going to, um, uh, I've got the uh, a lot of questions from the audience, which is wonderful, but I'm going to start with the difficult question because it's a question of us uh, thinking about strategy ahead. And there are several questions which, um, but I'm going to summarize them all, several questions on Hamas, but the, but the real um, question in all of these is how do we respond when Zionists and others come back with us that, well, what about Hamas? And so I want to ask um, our speakers to respond to that, but I just want to remind our audience that Israel was established through the Nakba in 1948, and Hamas as an organization was founded in 1987. So what about Hamas is a really uh, strange way to fa- to, to frame uh, the ongoing Nakba. But I will let our um, uh, speakers uh, have a go as to how new activists joining the movement can answer the question uh, when they're challenged, but what about the Hamas rockets? So, Nadine, do you want to have a quick go at that? Yeah, it sounds good. And I mean, um, for me, I feel like I kind of already alluded to this earlier when I mentioned Malcolm X um, and by any means necessary. You know, if people truly understand that concept, they understand that the oppressed. Uh, when you genocide them, when you ethnically cleanse them, when you colonize their land, when you trap them into the largest open air prison in the world, when you take away their resources, when you pollute their water, when you crumble their infrastructure, they're going to have to fight back by any means. That's what that's what that is. And, you know, putting the, the focus on one specific group is a is a PR scapegoating tactic that, you know, Zionists use. Um, to try to undermine the Palestinian struggle for liberation. But it's not just one group resisting in Gaza. There are many different groups resisting in Gaza. All of the groups are resisting in Gaza. Um, And then there's Palestinian youth um, on the streets of Jerusalem and the West Bank and in 48 resisting with what they have too. So a natural response to oppression is resistance. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal actually called into one of our rallies several years ago. um, And, you know, he he said these words that reverberate in my head constantly. Um, Wherever there is oppression, um, 
there will be resistance because oppression breeds resistance. Um, and that's what's happening. Uh, so for me, you know, I think people understand that uh, people have the right to defend themselves. And, you know, Palestinians, um, everything that, that Zionist colonization continues um, to, to do to us prevents us from having uh, an actual, like, you know, government that represents our people or pre prevents us from having um, an army, prevents us from having anything that's considered a legitimate form of resistance to, you know, Western countries or the United States or Israel itself. But that's them deciding, you know, um, that's not us deciding. Palestinians are deciding that we want to resist. Um, so, you know, even in the streets of Jerusalem, people were, call were calling on, on help from Gaza. Um, so, you know, this is... This is the this is the way that Palestinians are resisting. So if people are standing um, in support of Palestine, uh, that can't stop short when it comes to defending ourselves. How can you say that you support me? But then if somebody comes and tries to attack me, you tell me to just accept the attack and not and not try to defend myself. Then you don't actually support me. It's very basic, common, simple terms is the easiest way to explain it. You know, even at our, our, our last rally, we had an eight year old ask me. Um, and this wasn't planned at all. He literally asked me if he could speak. Um, and, and he said these things because, you know, if someone comes into your house, kicks out your family, you know, kills uh, half of them and then, you know, attacks you and whoever else is remaining, um, you, you, what are you going to do? Not resist? You know, of course you are. So I think it's it's very simple. These deflections, um, they fall apart. And also they bank on people being Islamophobic and anti-Arab. It's anti-Arab racism. It's Islamophobia. It's the idea that, you know, the big, bad, scary terrorist Muslims um, exist and, and they're doing stuff. Right. <laughs> like it's it's only natural wherever wherever you go. If people are, are being cornered um, into this, uh, they're going to respond. And just like you said, uh, the Nakba happened 40 years prior to um, Hamas's existence. So, you know, Israeli genocide, Israeli colonization pre-exists that, and that's the root cause. Um, so, you know, we we have we are resisting against something, right? So we have to look at the, at the root of that, um, and, and that's Israel's um, colonial project. So, you know, we like I, you know, I just want to stress over and over again. Um, that, you know, we to support the Palestinian people means supporting, you know, all forms of resistance. And we don't distinguish between resistance either. One is not, um, you know, necessarily like, you know, the, you know, even like the resistance in, in Gaza, they appreciate uh, people resisting on the on the streets of New York City by way of protest. Um, you know, we all have a different role to play. We're all different. Um, chess pieces in the movement for Palestinian liberation. And I think um, that, you know, for, for Gaza, for two years straight, like I alluded to the Great Return March before, um, this was not under any political party. For two years straight, every single Friday, masses, thousands of people in droves would march to the border with Israel, with the Zionist entity demanding to return to their homeland because they've been living under siege and blockade for over 15 years. And what was Israel's response? Shooting them down. So before anybody asks about what about Hamas, I want to hear what about the Great Return March. I want to hear what about the Nakba. Um, because, you know, the same people who will invoke Hamas will never bring those up. So we have no shortage of history or examples of Palestinians using so many different methods, whether they're palatable uh, for Western consumption or palatable for, you know, non uh, nonviolence, um, 
uh, you know, conception of things and we still, you know, don't get anywhere. So, um, you know, again, people have the right to defend themselves. And if you truly stand with somebody um, and their cause, then you, you won't ask us to accept um, colonization and accept genocide peacefully without fighting back, because that doesn't make any sense. Um, sorry, just leave it there. Thank you, Nadine. Sumaya, I, there is a wonderful question here, which speaks to things that you said earlier about the strike. It said, uh, the question is, what do you all think about dock workers stopping the flow of goods? Example, uh, just like in South Africa, should we be organizing and supporting more of these types of actions in the near future? Great question. Um, I mean, of course, yes. I think that one of the main things we should do in the U.S. is organize workers via unions to um, to put pressure on Israel. So I think what the dock dock workers have been doing now there there have been actions. I think South Africa and Italy in the Bay Area. We need more of that um, because not only does that actually uh, actually, you know, stop the weapons from reaching where they need to go, or at least significantly delay them. But it also thrusts into the mainstream, the fact that um, workers don't want to be complicit in this. They don't want to be part of this chain that gives Israel the weapons that it's using against Palestinians. And that this is actually part of a long history of how workers have resisted war, um, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere. As well, so I think actions like that are incredibly important. And we need more of them, especially in the US, we know that you need are invested in Israeli bonds. Um, and so, you know, organize organize your union to, to release statements, to do actions, um, and to um, engage in BDS and to figure out how do we divest from Israel um, on every level. And of course, I think there's, there's a, you know, I, there's so much I could say, but I, I would say reach out to me if you're thinking of organizing something like this, because there's others that are working on this as well. And it would be great to to help build something across across the country and internationally as well, but particularly in the U.S. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to say about the previous question is I think everything everything about Palestine, any action um, that happens needs to be understood in the context of settler colonialism. Like that should be our first step. The lay of the land is settler colonialism. Then we could be like, let's 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 talk about this or that formation. But the context of it all has to be settler colonialism. Thanks, Amaya. And for Kuri, finally, as we are um, nearly getting towards the end, because you've talked so beautifully about solidarity, here's a question about that. How can people of the Jewish diaspora stand in solidarity with Palestine and the anti-Zionist movement? That's a great question. And, um, you know, in my kind of in my earlier remarks, um, I, I named a number of things that have bloomed and shifted uh, that have led to a different conversation uh, in the U.S. Uh, in, in terms of this latest chapter um, of Israeli violence and resistance. And one other element of things that has has kind of bloomed is that. Uh, there is this, I think, probably more Jewish people in this country who are in solidarity with Palestinians uh, and critical of Israel than 
ever in, in, in the history of Israel, um, uh, which is which is really quite remarkable. I, I think that um, I think it's so important. You know, there, there's there's so many. There, there's a number of organizations. Uh, for Jewish folks to get involved in, um, I'll, I'll just shout out Jewish Voice for Peace uh, in particular, um, to to build solidarity with Palestinians in the struggle for free Palestine. And it's it's so I just think it's so important. I mean, of course, as everybody knows, whenever we declare the moment we declare um, uh, our solidarity uh, with Palestine, or just you know, literally Palestinians by virtue of who you are confronted all the time uh, as being anti-Semitic, that there's something sort of essentially anti-Semitic about the existence of the Palestinian uh, population and uh, about defending its right to exist and to resist. Um, And that is so wrapped up in the fact that Israel, (laughs) central to its kind of ideological justification that I talked about earlier, it's it's whole kind of... um, uh, the legitimacy that it uses uh, or, or what it presents to kind of offer legitimacy to its violence is the idea that it speaks on, that it acts on behalf of the world Jewish population, it, that it takes the symbols of Judaism uh, and literally uh, weaponizes them. I mean, like in the sense of literally taking the Star of David and having that on the side of an F-16 fighter jet, uh, these weapons, um, you know, taking the the menorah uh, and other other symbols of Judaism and fusing them with the, the notion of the Israeli state. Um, and so I think when Jewish folks, uh, you know, raise, raise a critique and say, you know what, this actually isn't, this isn't speaking for me. Uh, that's extremely important. Um, and I, I do want to say, too, that um, this is what, you know, the, the struggle for Palestinian freedom, I think, is so central to the struggle for um, freedom of all oppressed and marginalized people in this place and all around the world. And it's so critical that we build as much solidarity as possible, because it really is the case that that you know, I mean, we're we're in a we're in a, a white nationalist moment uh, in in the United States, um, in which anti-blackness, you know, anti-immigrant racism, uh, Islamophobia, uh, and anti-Semitism, you, you know, are all among various other forms of oppression are all present, um, and so building um, a kind of solidarity to take these things on and a solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle uh, in particular um, is really important. And I think that uh, Jewish solidarity is a, is a really important role in that. Thank you so much, Kuri. We have about five minutes left, so I'm going to give each of you about a minute or so to conclude. Um, I would really urge um, those listening in to listen very carefully to some of the suggestions that have come up in this talk. And I hope um, the speakers will also speak to what first-time listeners can do right after they log off this meeting. So um, that's all for me today. I will let our incredible uh, speakers have the last word. And I wish we were doing this in person so you could hear the standing ovations that you all deserve from this amazing meeting. So over to you.
Um, I would just say, you know, um, support organizations um, doing this work, whether it's, you know, my organization within our lifetime, United for Palestine, um, the New York for Palestine Coalition, so many different people, either by uh, joining, donating. We also started the Palestine Freedom Fund um, just a few days ago, which is a new project by the New York for for Palestine Coalition, which we're a part of, um, to help protesters who've been detained, arrested, um, you know, for for uh, protesting for Palestine on the streets. So, um, you know, please donate to that if you can as well, because, um, you know, we just talked about these accusations of anti-Semitism and the maligning of the Palestine liberation movement that happens in Palestine, but also here. And, um, you know, they wanna kill our movement on the ground and we can't let them. So um, keep supporting either by joining, donating, you know, whatever organizations, um, building the movement on the ground, uh, wherever, um, they are and and uh, you know support the freedom of those um, who are fighting so that they don't uh, try to they don't scare us um, out of fighting for Palestine and we, we won't be scared anyway but just I wanted to plug that thanks Tithi, for for inviting me to speak and for organizing this panel um, I think you know <laughs> There's so many ways to to plug in. If if you're listening, this is your first time, or you're thinking about what the next move is. Um, I have a long list of things for you to do. The first is to keep talking about this. Is to not let the media just you know go on to the next cycle of news, um, and not not to feel threatened and afraid of talking about this because of the repercussions. We know there are repercussions, but guess what? Any freedom struggle, there are compromises. There are consequences. Otherwise, we would have won a long time ago. But the movement is growing. So there's more of us saying these things. There's more of us um, here to back you up um, and to to organize collectively and push collectively because that's when we're strongest. So I would say keep talking concretely. You know, if you're at school, organize a divestment campaign. If you're in a union, figure out how your union can divest from Israel or how you can release statements, how you can connect with Palestinian workers on the ground who are building day in and day out under occupation uh, for their rights as workers. Um, if you are, um, if you are at, uh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, organize for sanctions. Push your representatives to support sanctions um, and push for sanctions um, on every level, whether it's local. Uh, or, or federal, but we need to sanction Israel. And this is a call from Palestinians on the ground to sanction Israel. And the last thing I'll end with um, is uh, teach your children about Palestine. Read with them and teach them and let them go to school and teach their peers and the other students around them, because that is also key, because it's these new generations that are pushing much further um, um, than we have in the past. Thank you. I, all of that, thank you for all of that. Serious gratitude for this entire um, event and to you, Tithi, and for the, the folks on tech making this run in Haymarket, Inspector. Um, and yeah, absolutely to everything Nardine and Samaya said, um, go to a rally. You, you know, you, you, even if you, if you think, oh, I'm still trying to figure out, I don't know enough. First of all, you know enough. I mean, of course, there, there, there's always more for us to learn, but you know enough. If you're watching this, you know enough to know what you're seeing is wrong um, and to know what side you're on. But go to a rally, which is not only a deck, you know, a show of solidarity, but is itself an educational event. I promise you, you will learn so much um, from uh, a Palestine 
solidarity rally. And I'll just end um, by saying, in addition to the very practical things that Samaya and, and, and Nardine said you can do and support, you know, I take guidance from the great freedom fighter Asada Shakur. Uh, in her autobiography, she talked about what it meant to come into solidarity with people who were of different communities, you know, with Puerto Rican folks, with folks indigenous to North America, and how she realized that she, when she, in her mind, were references to things that she had heard about indigenous people uh, to this place, or that she had heard about Puerto Ricans, and she said, "I needed to learn from them their histories." who their heroes are so I could understand uh, these people and their struggle and be in solidarity with it. So, you know, what a, what a fantastic time to join the solidarity struggle and read these people, learn these people, you know, read Edward Said, follow Nerdin in Sameya um, and Nora Erika and Mariam Barghouti and Mohammed El-Kurd, the amazing heroes uh, leading us today. What a fantastic time. What an honor to be in solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle. Thank you so much and uh, see you at the next rally and organize for BDS where you can. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.